is the Angel Next Door podcast, where we will talk about all things angel investing, what it is, who does it, how do we find them, what does it mean to invest in an early stage company. If you have ever wondered how you can affect the change you want to see in the world, then tune in to learn more. This episode is great, not just for investors, but also for entrepreneurs. I've been encouraging more entrepreneurs to listen in order to know more about the angel investing process as they go out to fundraise and grow their company. But in this episode, I'm talking to Liz Sigety of Fox Rothschild Law Firm and also a co-founder of the Delaware Crossing Angel Group in Philadelphia. Liz and I are going to be talking about the Fox Launchpad program, which helps entrepreneurs get their legal documents in order, even if they are still at the earliest of stages in forming the company. And that is when it is so important to get the company set up properly at the very, very earliest of times. Liz is not only an expert lawyer in everything startup and beyond, but she's also an experienced investor in over 50 early stage companies. And you want to stick around to the end when I'm going to play a short clip that I recorded at the ACA Summit from King's Crowd Ahmed Takaka. King's Crowd has created an interesting platform where they use data to predict the possible success or maybe not so successful outcomes for crowdfunding. Another thing that entrepreneurs will want to stick around to hear about. Enjoy the show. Hi, Liz. Welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for asking me, Marsha. So as you know, we are talking to angels and learning more about how people became angels at the Angel Next Door. So I would love to hear your story because not only are you a partner and lawyer for Fox Rothschild, which we'll talk about, but also you are a co-founder and managing director of Delaware Crossings Angel Group in Philadelphia. So tell us though, first, how did you even learn about what angel investing was and how did you come across Delaware Crossing? Well, I think um, back around the dot-com boom, my husband and I were approached by some friends to invest in their companies. And that turned out pretty miserably, maybe with the exception of one investment. So clearly, we didn't know much about what we were doing, though I was surrounded by a fairly entrepreneurial family. So when I joined Fox Rothschild back in 2004, uh, two of my partners were talking about starting an angel group. And the reason was because there were very few angel groups back then, and there were virtually no incubators or accelerators. So there weren't many resources for early stage companies, at least not in the Philadelphia area. There were a couple groups. Robinhood Ventures had just started the year before, and there were a couple groups that no longer exist. So they kept talking about it and they kept talking about it, but nothing was really happening. And I was new to Fox and I decided to take that idea and run with it and uh, basically gathered some community leader types. And we got all together and we had a party. And at the end of the party, we had a mock demonstration by a company that just raised money that turned into about a dozen members and we grew up from there. And I found very quickly that one of the best things about the group was to protect me from making bad investments. That was a, a wonderful start. Yeah. So talk a little bit more about that was because there were more people in the group to make the decisions or what? Well, it certainly is the expertise of the group. Delaware Crossing is certainly more than 12 members now, but 
for me, I get very enthusiastic and I love entrepreneurs and it's just sort of a natural inclination that I have. But, you know, a doctor comes in leading a company saying that they're going to cure cancer and it sounds all good to me. And then I find out from some of the other scientists and doctors in my group that the data they're looking at is not good data or that there's already other things out there that are comparable or that this would never be able to be sold to a hospital. So people have expertise that I I don't have in those areas. Oh, I can so relate to that because mm-hmm. I've seen so many, especially in the healthcare space, companies pitch that I was like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. Yeah. You absolutely have to go, you know, I have to invest in you and you have to go all the way and this is going to be so great. And then come to find out that they're like, yeah, we have this in so that we're going to be able to sell into hospitals. But they, this one company in particular, they could not get their manufacturing together. So even if they had been able to sell into the hospitals, they couldn't, didn't have anything to sell. Right. Yeah. No, there's a lot of, and nobody knows everything. So the group think, I mean, I love the conversations around the table. Delver Crossing is a small group and everybody likes to talk and everybody seems to like to hear each other talk. And, uh, the conversations at the meetings are really interesting. And then how many members do you have now? Around 35. And that's that tends to be where we land. And that's our personality. Everybody at the table is an investor. We don't have any sponsors or anything like that. No application fees. You know, we try to keep our minimums uh, reasonable for investment and to make it very accessible. And that's just, the you know, every angel group has a different personality and a different reason why different people would join. So that's us. Yeah, for sure. Now, are there specific industries or or types of companies that you tend to gravitate to at Delaware Crossing as a group? Well, we certainly were in the Philadelphia region and the uh, Philadelphia is one of the top cities for life sciences Mm, uh, mm -hmm. with, you know, CHOP and Penn and Temple and a lot of other, and a lot of very large corporate headquarters as well, J&J. So that is a very strong area, but Delaware Crossing is theoretically industry agnostic, but most of it is tech and life sciences, like many angel groups. Sometimes there's chemicals or, or engineering companies, but um, Delaware, Delaware is the river. I always like to tell people this, it's not the state. So we are regional investors, the greater Delaware Valley and three or four hours drive away from there. And the reason for that, and people, I know in this virtual world, people are questioning regional investors. But when I started the group and was asking people what would be their reason for joining or not joining an angel group, a lot of people wanted to support the entrepreneurs here. And it was almost like a mission. It wasn't a big, you know, huge focus on, oh, we want to be able to invest in Silicon Valley. It really was that they wanted to invest in entrepreneurs in our region. And our region is large, Connecticut, New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland. So it's a large region, but nonetheless, that was important to them. And that makes a lot of sense. I've heard that over and over again, that people, they really want to support the companies that are coming out of the, either the universities or the areas like right in their own backyard. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not just all about opportunity. It's also about that mission. Mm-hmm. So then do you tend to syndicate with a lot of the other investment groups in the Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, New York, New Jersey area? Absolutely. 
Pennsylvania has an organization called the Pennsylvania Angel Network, and everybody gets on the phone every other week and talks about what they're looking at and syndicates. We almost always syndicate. We don't have the firepower to fill out a million or $2 million round. Uh, we, we could not do that. So we usually follow on or syndicate with other groups or you know, increasingly early stage venture capitalists as well, since there seems to be more VC at the early stage than there used to be. Right. That's definitely true. So that's a good segue into my next question, which is around SPVs, single purpose vehicles that we've been talking about on the show a couple of times now. So the, our listeners are, are kind of used to us talking about it and, and I'm interested in making sure that people kind of know all sides of it, like why people do it or when is a good example of how we could set it up so that it's easier on the entrepreneur. So do you at Delaware Crossing tend to put SPVs together? Yes, we do. And, but it's morphed over time. Uh, when we started the group, we hadn't really thought about that because we hadn't thought of a lot of things. We've learned a lot over the last 17 years. But the companies don't like to have 10 different people from each group on their cap table. It's messy. Uh, VCs don't like to come in on top of that. Actually, I was just looking at a company that has about 50 individuals on their cap table, and it's a little bit daunting. So we started uh, to put together SPVs for each investment. And back in those days, sometimes those investments would be investments in LLCs, and then you're waiting for the K-1s from the company, and then people are mad when they have to extend their taxes, when those K-1s are late. And then we ended up having a ton of SPVs and you know, many entities to deal with, K-1s for each entity. You have to create them. Someday you have to dissolve them, and it's a lot of extra work. So recently, a few years ago, we started doing what some people would call a series LLC, yeah. where we house many investments into uh, one special purpose vehicle. And so that is working really well so far. We are about to close down our first one and create a second one because we want to, don't want to have too many companies in the same one. But yeah, it took a little while to put that agreement together, but it is so far working really well. Yeah. And for our listeners, we, and we've talked before, cap table is basically just the list of owners that are your investors and founders, usually in a company, all anybody who has any type of an equity stake is on the cap table. So maybe explain a little bit why like 50 people on a cap table is like, ah, scary. Well, it's, it's hard to manage. First of all, often you have to get votes from all of those people for consents, especially, for example, if you have preferred stock, the preferred stock round will have voting rights and certain protective provisions, things that they have to consent to if the company's going to enter into significant transactions. And uh, chasing down all those people can be a problem instead of for the company talking to just one person. If you have pro rata rights or if you have you know, rights of first refusal, once again, getting consents and collecting consents from each of those people is just can be a huge task for the company. And a VC coming in on top of that may not like some of the information rights and other rights that they have under state law as well. So it's it's a bit of a management nightmare. 
And also it's, it's hard to tell sometimes where those people are coming from and if somebody's done a proper due diligence and who's led it. A little bit of the history is a little bit tough. Um, one of the companies I've recently looked at, the lead didn't do the due diligence. I think everybody else thought they they had. So it's hard to identify who some of these people are. And sometimes they're amazing and really valuable to the company. So I'm not saying that isn't true, but it just ends up being hard to administer the cap table and to keep everything straight. Yeah, the whole having to hunt people down to get a vote, that, that's always hard. More than people think. <laughs> yes, because you've got people who are like, oh, no, I'm on vacation in Switzerland or whatever they're doing. And right. so it's really hard. Definitely. So talk a little bit about your work then at Fox Rothschild and how you've been helping entrepreneurs along the way, as well as then how you've been sitting on the investor side in Delaware Crossing. Sure. So yeah, I'm an investor. I've invested in probably over 50 companies. So I really, you know, do believe in the early stage world. Uh, Fox Rothschild is a large law firm, which scares many startups. <laughs> and they often go to um, other firms that aren't as big. But I believe we have a lot of expertise coast to coast in the emerging companies area. I'm chair of the emerging companies practice, which has about 100 lawyers. But what we've done and what a lot of firms that are truly dedicated to the emerging companies world do is to have special programs within their firms to help startups. So if there's an inventor who has you know, a great idea and a lot of promise, we will put that company, or it's not usually a company yet, into our Fox Launchpad program. And that we have a, a low flat fee to get that company started and to get all the proper documents and stock issuances and cap table instead of equity program in place to prepare them for financing. And then we have a lot of other free things that we give the company, like we can do free background checks for them, free facilities for them to meet across the country. We have a, a consultant that will, for five hours, help them with their pitch deck and the firm will pay for that. Just a lot of other things to make sure they're doing the right thing. And, you know, I come from the University of Chicago incentive, you know, mindset. And I just want to make sure that the attorney and the company are have the same incentive to set this up correctly. So one thing that I think is unique about the Launchpad is that to the extent they're talking about the startup company package documents, they have full access to their attorney and to call and ask questions and not worry that you know they're going to get a $1,000 bill for a conversation. So that is really the idea. My firm's been incredibly supportive. We've had, you know... In the last few years, 50 or so companies come through the launch pad, and we hope they graduate. And when they graduate, it means that they have their first significant round of fundraising. We give them a little graduation present. Nice. <laughs> and they, you know, we move, hopefully we move along together. Well, you know, I love that. And I love the name of it too, Fox Launchpad. You know, it's so often that startups, they are so scared of lawyers because they think that, oh my gosh, I'm just like you said, I'm going to get a bill for a thousand dollars just for having a conversation. And really, I'm so excited to hear about what Fox Rothschild's doing and, and, you know, what, 
what people are willing to do in order to help these entrepreneurs, because it really is so detrimental when they don't set up the company properly at the beginning. And then they do start to get a little bit of traction or in some cases, a lot of traction. And then they are now trying to find somebody to kind of undo or redo or just set up something that's already, it's almost like trying to um, build the plane while it's flying and it's just a mess. Yeah, it, it can be. And it can be frustrating for the attorney and for the company because often people will come to us and want to be in the launch pad, but there's so much that's gone wrong already. You know, from a tax point of view, uh, they can mess up their tax situation really easily. The founders can if they don't set things up and that can be a ton of money for mm. them in the end. And then they they think they've done a lot and they want they actually want a discount sometimes, but it actually takes a lot more time if we haven't been able to do it from the start. Right. Yes, I've seen that where I've talked to some founders before and they're like, okay, well, we're ready to go raise money. And I'm like, okay, well, let me see the documents that you have just between the two of you, you know, you co-founders. Mm-hmm. And right. they're they're like, oh, well, we don't, we don't have any of that set up yet. I'm like, okay, that's a problem. Because <laughs> now if they end up having any kind of value in the business, they can't, you can't just go back and say, oh yeah, I'm gonna divvy up these common shares because the common shares now actually have some value. So it's almost like now you're going to, in order to get them, you're going to have to pay for them. Exactly. Exactly. And that causes all kinds of tax implications. Like you were saying, oh, it's just a, it's a mess. So definitely lawyers can be your friends, (laughs) (laughs) especially early on. So Liz, before we wrap up, I would love to hear you were just at our annual summit and we've been telling our listeners a little bit about it because we had a couple people come on the show before the summit to tell us what we were going to hear about. But you ran this amazing session called The Great Debate and it was just so much fun. You had three different people, each one of them playing a different role. One was preferred stock, one was a convertible note, and one was a safe, a simple agreement for equity that we've talked about all three of those things on the show before. But I would love for you to just tell us a couple highlights because I saw it and I thought it was just great. Oh, highlights. Well, (laughs) I don't know if I should tell the substantive highlights or just the funny highlights. (laughs) (laughs) Either one. Well, one of the funny highlights was, I think, the disclaimer. Everybody loved the disclaimer. So angels have very strong views, especially about the safe. The simple agreement for future equity is a very new, fairly new security on the scene. There was an original safe that was the pre-money safe, which nobody liked. Now there is a post-money safe that some people are getting more comfortable with investing in, and more and more companies are offering safes. And we are going to have to figure this out in my group because there are some really good companies coming at us with a post-money safe. But there are strong feelings in the angel community about this and these things being, you know, quote unquote, forced on them. And so before a couple of the people, everybody wanted to be equity. All three (laughs) men wanted to be equity. That's what everybody likes the most. And I told them I would put a disclaimer at the beginning of the presentation that said that they all graciously agreed to play the role of their appointed security and that they are not expressing their own views. It's sort of like a television show disclaimer. Right. 
is allowed to yell at them after the presentation if they don't agree with what they said. And every the whole audience broke out in laughter and it was very funny. Yes, that, that's awesome. Oh, yes. So uh, explain though, what is a post money safe versus another kind of safe that's out there? Pre-money safe. So the all pre-money safe, I mean, these are just contracts, but they are securities and everybody has to remember that you have to comply with the securities law and people actually often don't because they don't realize that. But a pre-money safe is just a contract that simply said, if you give us $100,000, then that $100,000 will convert into the next round at a discount. And usually the discount is around 20%. So if the next round of equity is a dollar a share, you get the shares for 80 cents. So, and that's all it said. It didn't say anything about what happened if the company exited early there was no maturity date. Mm. There was no priority over equity. There was no valuation, though sometimes a valuation cap would be put on those safes. No control rights, no governance rights, nothing. So nobody liked it. Well, no, well the companies liked it, but the angel investors who were experienced investors, you know, these aren't just friends and family or people off on their own. These are angel groups. They didn't like it. Post-money safe, the one that is used the most often has a post-money valuation. So what that means is that once all the safe money, all that rounds, if they're raising you know $500,000 of money, once all that money is in to the company, there is a agreed upon valuation. So if the ending valuation is $5 million, and the safe round was $500,000, that safe round would have 10% of the company once that safe round was finished. So there's certainty into what those people get. There's also certainty because there is a liquidation provision. So if there's an exit, they're basically treated like non-participating preferred. So that is a huge improvement on the old safe, but there's still no control rights. You know, you still don't really know what the next round valuation is going to be in the future, but you know what your current one is. And it, there's no debt priority and there's no maturity date. So there's no time when there's a decision making point when, you know, the angels can say, OK, uh, it's been a few years. You know, tell us what's going on here. So there's still disadvantages, but it is better than what used to be there. Interesting. And if all of these terms we've been throwing around are interesting to you and you'd like to learn more, you can, of course, always go to the Angel Capital Association's website and look up the Ann and Bill Payne ACA Angel University classes. There is an entire class on term sheets where we talk all about these fun terms like non-participating preferred stock. That's always my favorite. Very good. Well, Liz, thank you so much for being on the show. This is great. And we learned a lot about the different types of things that Fox Launchpad can do to help entrepreneurs. I love that. So thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for asking. I want to play this quick two-minute clip for you from Ahmed Takaka, the CIO of King's Crowd. Kingscrowd is the first ratings and analytics platform for online private markets. And I'm going to let him give a little overview about what it is that Kingscrowd does. And you can find them at kingscrowd.com. Ahmad Takapka from Kingscrowd. What we do is we, we collect data on hundreds of companies that are raising money online. Uh, we like to call that new market segment, the online private market versus the traditional private market where companies raise money, not from 
only angel investors and VCs, but from the crowds. So I'm sure you heard about the crowdfunding platforms like Republic, WeFunder, Search Engine. There are 45 platforms like these today. And what we do, we collect all of the, we aggregate the investment deals from all of these platforms in one-stop shop. So you can go there, you find all the deals from all these platforms, and we collect data on their fundraising process. And what we do is more than that. We uh, try to predict if they are going to have their maximum goal or not. We try to predict how fast they can uh, raise their funding round. Some companies take months to a year to raise $5 million, and some companies raise $5 million in a couple of hours. So it's a hybrid from crowds, angel investors, VCs, and we've seen some big VC, top-tier VC firms encouraging their own portfolio companies to raise money from their own customer base because this will mean that they will become brand ambassadors. They have an interest, an equity interest in those companies, and they will promote these companies to even more customers, and this will expand the growth of these companies and their customers. So we collect that type of data, but we also compare these companies to each other to create some sort of a rating system. So we can provide some actionable investment intelligence to our customers who are the investors who would invest in these companies. So investors would come to us, subscribe to our platform, and pay anything between $20 to $50 a month, as I said, to access all of our data, productions, ratings, and sometimes deep dive research on these companies, uh, qualitative research, in addition to our quantitative data-driven ratings algorithms that we created to to score these companies. So that's in a nutshell what, what King's Crowd does. If we want to be the change we want to see in the world, we need to invest in the change we want to see in the world. And what's the best way to learn more about that? Sign up for a class at the Anne and Bill Payne ACA Angel University. Classes are offered often. Look at our website, angelcapitalassociation.org, for the schedule. We offer everything from angel investing basics, which include fundamentals, risks, due diligence, term sheets, valuations, returns, and portfolio strategy. And we also get into a deeper dive with capitalization tables, startup boards, and exit strategies. And if you're not already a member of the Angel Capital Association, you can become one for as little as $250 for the year. And that will give you access to discounts, free webinars, networking, and much more. We'd love to have you join us. The Angel Next Door podcast is informational and not intended to serve as legal, tax, accounting, or investing advice. Our speakers and hosts are thoughtfully selected for their educational value but their opinions are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of the Angel Capital Association, and the Angel Capital Association does not specifically endorse the use of presenters' products or services. Listeners of the podcast should consult their own tax, investing, legal, or accounting advisors before making important financial decisions. All warranties, including accuracy, completeness, and suitability for specific purpose, are disclaimed.